Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 123. This episode is with performance specialist Clive Brewer. Clive came on the podcast to talk about how to train for the critical moments in a game. We spoke about optimal speed loads and some issues he sees with drills not incorporating speed responses. We spoke about using speed as a protective um, method of training against injury. We also spoke about the importance of making time for speed work as well. So plenty covered in this episode. I think we went into great detail, um, especially in terms of speed development in football. Some really great information from Clive and he gave some great case studies and stories as well uh, from some of his experiences in in football and most recently with Columbus Crew as well. So I really appreciate Clive coming on the podcast. As always, please let us know what your takeaways were from the episode and please share the episode on social media or send it out to any coaches, friends, families, colleagues that you think may benefit from the podcast as well. I really appreciate everyone giving the podcast a share and getting it out to as many people as possible. Also, if you haven't done so already, just pop over onto iTunes. Please give us a review. It means the most um, to the podcast and also to the popularity of the podcast and the guests that we can get on as well. So please head over to iTunes and do that if you've not already done it. And you can also watch the podcast over on YouTube if you prefer to watch it rather than just listening to the episode. So I hope you enjoy episode 123 with Clive Brewer. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 123. I'm delighted today to be joined by Clive Brewer, performance specialist, currently based over in the US. So Clive, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for giving up your time, mate. I really appreciate it. I think we've got some really exciting topics to delve into as well. Um, Now, I'm sure plenty of the listeners I've seen your career and seen where you've been so far and seen what you've been up to. But um, do you want to just take us through your background um, and, and some of your most recent roles? Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, I've been operating, I guess, in in the UK since, well, when did I get my first job? Probably 1997, I think, or back in back in black and white anyway. It seems a long time ago. Um and went through a number of roles in, in uh, you know, in professional sport, working around rugby, soccer and, and tennis. I guess people uh, will most know me from the times of around uh, early 2000s when I started off as the, the National Programme Manager for Athlete Development at Sport Scotland. So I worked across a range of things and that was really where I started to get organised into the, the player development things with soccer, working a lot with the SFA um, and looking at their, their player development structures and frameworks and, and also travelling with you know, some of the national teams with regards to a sports science role there and moving through. I went from there back down to the head of human performance with England Rugby League, and and that was really a great opportunity for you know for a, a forward thinking governing body to really start to think about how do you integrate all the aspects of science, conditioning, and medicine into into one department. Um, and I think that's a, you know that that's part of a journey that's that's led on now, and a number of teams are, are coming on. So I stayed in rugby league for a few years, and then I did some really in, a period of really interesting consultancy around. Had some some great stuff working with uh, with Tony Strubwick at Man United, um, working with with Liverpool and particularly the ladies team there where we had two years of, of championship success uh, in the women's Super League and a couple of other Premier League teams as well, uh, as well as some international work and that led me to the Toronto Blue Jays uh, in Major League Baseball, which was that was a really great learning experience for me. I mean, having never seen a game of baseball before before I got there. 
Um, that was a, that was a really nice challenge. But I spent four really good years there, uh, learned a lot, um, and was then headhunted to go to Columbus Crew um, in Major League Soccer, and was there uh, for for a period of time. And then and now you know I've moved on from that role, um, and you know now I'm, again I'm consulting across a range of sports at the minute, but also looking and seeing what's next. I always like getting practitioners on that have worked in a number of different sports because I always think it's really good to get an opinion and and to pull from some of the cultures of different sports as well and what we can learn from all different sports. And baseball is an interesting one, isn't it? And a couple of episodes ago, we had another guest that had been in baseball and come back out um, and we were talking about some lessons. So is there anything that jumps out from you? Because obviously with, with rugby, with, um, with baseball, like you said, and then being involved in football as well, was there anything that sort of jumped out or that you took into your role with Columbus that you'd potentially learn from other sports um, or took from other sporting cultures? Yeah, I mean, I think you always, I mean, every situation you're in, you learn from, right? So one of the, one of the real things that I never appreciated about baseball until I got there was the fact that baseball is always played somewhere else in the sense that, that you know, that I was responsible for nine teams. Yeah. Um, spread across three time zones and, the, and the, you know, the, the, the wide diversity of, of geography in the, in the US. So two, two things that, that I think were really important about that. One is um, the importance of, of, a, of a common language and a common means of communication through a system so that regardless of whether I'm reading an email or in person in the meeting or looking at a report or on a Zoom as we were using pre-COVID days back in baseball because we needed to, um, Everyone understood what we were talking about and everyone understood there was, there was a common framework and a commonality of reference that we could we could talk to so that regardless of whether I was talking to, you know, a, an athletic trainer, a physio, a strength coach, we would understand, you know, what is, what is a hinge pattern and what do we look like to establish whether someone has got a good hinge pattern or not and how do we correct it mm. as, you know, as an example. So commonality of language is one thing. I think the other thing that baseball does really, really well um, is utilize the power of analytics. And so the the ability to get someone who's got more more brains in their big toe than I've got in my entire body. Um, and they they watch the game through numbers. And that's a that's a really, really useful skill and tool to have because it enables us then to utilize their expertise and, and patterns and and i can ask you know i'm always curious about things why is this why is this what is this they can they can actually use the numbers to pull things through and, and show it and demonstrate it um and and do it in a lot quicker time frame than i can but in terms of that mathematical model it also enables us to really say okay well what if we manipulated this variable in a simulation what what impact would that have you know and I was able to really utilize that at Columbus, for example, to start looking at um, once we'd established norms for training loads within certain drills and what each player did, we were then able to say, OK, if we put those drills into a into a, this week's training model, um, what would the load be for the player? What do we anticipate them doing so that we could start to say, OK, we predict their load to be this. Where are they going to need? Where are we going to plan to do individual top ups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, now, look, the model doesn't always work, right? So, but you have your plan and then no, like someone says, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so, 
you know, um, I, I think what we were we were trying to do is to say, okay, here's here's the plan, here's how we would look at it, what is actually delivered, and then make the decisions live on the training field about are we going to top this player up or not, and 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 that sort of stuff. But but that comes from having a really good. Uh, analyst who's able to understand both the numbers but also work with me in terms of the context he may not understand the physiology that underpins it or, or whatever but but is, is really good in, in that way and, and that was something I definitely took from uh, took from baseball and something I'll, I'll definitely look to carry on forward in my roles. That relationship there is really key though isn't it because you basically got someone that's got the context which is yourself being involved in the sport and then someone that's mainly looking at it from a from a um, stats point of view like you say, might not have too much um, knowledge around the context. So putting them both together and having conversations around those could obviously lead to um, you being able to add different aspects into the into the whole preparation, can't it? It's a, it's a really interesting combination. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, that's the, that's the strength of any performance department is the fact that you've got, you know, a number of people and they're all looking at a particular problem through this through their own lens, right? Their own experiences, their own background, their own. And where you, where you get the real magic occurring in the performance department is when you get that that commonality of discussion where everyone sat down. The player is at the center of this as a process and everyone is looking at it from their perspective and everyone's voice is equal. And you're really able to say, OK, no, I can understand why you're saying that. So you're seeing a weakness. I need to be able to correct that weakness. So, if, like for example, if the physio says a player is is weak here, then we can utilize the sports scientist to say, okay, well, how weak is he? For example, using a you know a groin squeeze or or whatever, you know, one of the range of diagnostic tests we've got. The strength coach is able to say, okay, well, I what do I need to do? What are the limitations around it so I can take that number from here to there? You know, and my role as the performance director in that discussion is to, is is to literally synthesize and make sure there's one plan that that addresses and identifies the weakness and moves it through so having having all those different perspectives coming together not everyone needs us in fact if everyone's got the same knowledge background experiences it becomes a pretty dull discussion right yeah um so having that that trust and the ability to pull that pull that through i think is is really i mean that's that's where the magic happens that's the fun bit yeah, it's that team dynamic, isn't it? And the and the culture that we've got at whatever club it is and being able to have those open open and honest sometimes conversations, isn't it? And, and sometimes disagreements as well, but having that environment that we can have it in. Yeah, no, I think I mean no one no one welcomes conflict, right? But but at some point it's 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 healthy. If the fact that you've got the relationship and everyone understands look, everyone our job is to, you know, is to really I mean, two things. One, we've got to enhance the product on the field, right? That's that's first and foremost the fundamentally important thing. Yeah. If if we're not delivering better, fitter, stronger, more robust, more mentally tough, better prepared players for the for the coach, then then we're not doing our job. And mm. and in doing that, we've got a responsibility to push boundaries, right? So you don't you don't push boundaries and and do new things by doing what you've always done. So you've always got to be looking to challenge and think and, you know, learn from what, what worked really well. Let's do more of it and build on it. What didn't work so well and <clears throat> don't do it again. And, you know, and then and then move that through. So I think that that's, you, you're not going to get that kind of environment if people are existing in fear. Yeah. You no. Know? So what I really want to say to staff is, you know, when they, when they work with me is like, guys, 
I, I trust you, right? I trust you to do your job. Let's have a sound, let's have a good discussion about it. Let's have the rationale and underpinning it. Let's decide on the action plan. And once we decide on the action plan, I'm accountable. Yeah. You know, so mm. I think that, that that environment for me is is a healthy one where everyone's everyone everyone's opinion is respected, uh, that we learn from each other and that we that we collaborate in and around that. And like, sure, if there's if there's going to be some some conflicts and some discussion about it, great. You know, um, yeah. but at least everyone's everyone's the, the reason there's conflict there is because we've all got trust and support for each other. And the conflict is around the intellectual ideas or how we achieve an aim. And that's 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 great. Yeah, definitely. No, that's tough. Now, we're going to have a discussion around um, training for critical moments in a game, because we've spoke a lot on this podcast. I know other podcasts have spoke, spoke a lot about speed training, developing speed, developing acceleration. But I think this is really important because like anyone who's watched football or been involved in football, we know that those critical moments are the ones that can define wins or losses or what happens in the season. So let's start broad, mate. Let's start first, the sort of approach for um, training for those critical moments, and then we'll get into a, a little bit more detail on on the sort of processes. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think for me, the, the, the first and foremost is if you're going to structure any training it's it's about you've got to have that understanding of what it is the coach is trying to achieve on the field, right? So what is what is the style of play that is going to define this team, and that's what that's literally what you're 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 preparing players for. Yeah. So that having that understanding, I think, is critical. And you know, a few years ago, you know, you saw it at Liverpool with the team. They were, you know, their philosophy was every time we got the ball and moving forward, can we get five players moving around the ball? Yeah. Right now, that that is that is gonna that's gonna create a different physiological demand than than someone who's got a different style of play. Right. Mm -hmm. So at Columbus, for example, uh, the key thing was about transition. So uh, the coach wanted to play. You know, is a high press game. So Rob Rob plays a space. So there's got to be some intensity there. But can we turn attack into defense and defense into attack in under six seconds? Right. That's that was the key to the style of play. So. That means that there's going to be certain positions within that that are going to have, and typically your wingers and your fullbacks, for example, they're going to be they're going to be doing a lot of high intensity running and a lot of sprinting. So we need to make sure that we're preparing the players for that because if not, the style of play isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to start at that point, isn't it? Because sometimes we get we'll see uh, ways of working and methodologies and try and put it into whatever our program is where it doesn't really fit. And I think you're right. Like we need to determine what it is we're trying to hit. And like you said, the style of play, but then also the the players that are involved, the the formations and things like that. Because we talk about like wide players, how many wide players have we got? What sort of player are they? There's a lot of factors, isn't there, that go into it that we need to determine from the from the start. Yeah, no, you're right. And and I think that's where sometimes, you know, it's about being key about understanding what we look at through our performance metrics as well. So, you know, I, there was a, you know, you could look at the stats and say players run, you know, 11, 12 kilometers in a game, you know, whatever they do in MLS. And, you know, therefore we need to train players to run 11 or 12 kilometers. Yeah. And if you, if you focused in on that, then you'd, you'd probably lead yourself down the wrong training path, if that makes sense. You know, we need players to be able to get there through repeat high intensity metrics. So, when, when I looked at training sessions, 
Um, total distance, for example, it's it's a measure of time on feet and it's a measure of fatigue, right? But that's all it is. It wasn't something I really paid a lot of attention to, particularly as at Columbus, for example, we had a number of training fields and I know, you know, most of the, the Premier League teams like this as well. You know, you have a number of training fields and the players walk from, they do a drill on field one and walk to field two to do a different, that's, that's volume that's going to be yeah. measured that, that doesn't contribute, right? So... Um, you know, we would we would have for each each training day, we would identify what is the key metric that's going to determine our physiological contribution to this session. And, you know, so if it's an extensive session, we you know, we might look at um, high speed running. If it's an intensive session, we're going to look at uh, high metabolic load, for example, as, as targets. Um, and if we if we follow things in that way, then we can actually begin to understand what is the objective we're trying to achieve. And then we can tailor the methods accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, because obviously we're talking real, real about context now, aren't we, in terms of what those volumes look like. Um, and one thing I was going to ask is, is around like isolated speed work and sort of contextual speed work and how you've incorporated that into into training, because obviously we'll, we, we know that in a lot of small sided games, there'll be a lot of high speed, um, like high speed work. But can we talk around the sort of structure on how you sort of whether you did use isolated work, how that how that was in, embedded into the program, and then along with the contextual work? Yeah, sure. I think that um, a lot of it comes down to training at the individual. So you've got a team training session, but you really want to focus down what's the individual needs of the player, right? So if you look at those opportunities for speed training, um, generally a warm up is a good time to reinforce mechanics. Yeah. Um, but you never actually get the the exertions that that you might want to get from you know you might finish off with a couple at the end, but but that's that's largely it. So I think we would look at it in terms of if you've got small sided games, what you're going to see a lot of is accelerations, decelerations, and direction changes. But you're never going to see uh, someone expressing into into high speed running or you know the the maximum velocity stuff, or very rarely you don't get much of it at all. Um, so where are the opportunities within the week that we expect that to occur? And this is where you sit down with the coach and say, look, on the, you know, the, the periodization model for most teams is fairly, is fairly fixed, right? You know what you're going to do, game day minus one, game day minus two, um, et cetera. So within those sessions, you can, you can roughly plan, okay, this is the day we're going to get high accelerations, decelerations. These, this is, this is the session we're going to get top end speed and, and maximum velocity running. And what you begin to do is to say, well, what are the individual zones that I really need players to start to hit, right? Because for each player, you know, one of the one of the things I've always done is built a, a I don't know what you call it, a functional risk profile or whatever. It's like basically what keeps this player on the field and keeps him playing well, right? So you understand what does a good um, extensive session look like in a player. And a player, when this player has an optimum game, what does he typically do in the extensive session? What does he typically do in the intensive mm. session? What does he typically do in game day minus one? And you can, so therefore you're setting those, those zones and that's, that's one part of that performance plan for the player. Um, so we would look at it and say, okay, on this day, there's this drill, we expect the players to hit this, right? And you would construct the drill to do it. And that's where you'd speak to the coach about, look, you know, can we adapt this drill to increase the space available or, you know, etc. So we try and get it. One of the things I would tr always try and do is incorporate as much of the mechanical loading or the mm -hmm. fitness work within the within the soccer stuff. I think that's that's important because yeah. separating out 
the, the players don't really like that. It's more time. It's more, you know. Um, but then what we did do at the end of it was individual work. And is then saying to the coach, okay, you know, for example, uh, we had one uh, centre forward who never achieved a sprint in training. No matter what sort of work was done, his the way he trained didn't didn't bring about those 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 sprints. And but he also had a, he also had a history of uh, hamstring strains and groin strains that we <laughs> that we knew from previous clubs. Yeah. So. Now there's 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 a there's a pretty typical pattern, right? And I've and I've seen it before in other teams where you've got people who they, they don't achieve the sprints in training, they're required to do them in a game, and 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 suddenly they're injured, right? No no surprise there. So how do we get ahead of that in this particular player? Well, one is a you know we tailor we tailor his off field work, his gym program, and his preparation work around you know protecting the hip hip and groin region. Right, so there's there's a focus on additional hamstring work and groin work, but secondly, what you do is say to that player, this is this is if you're not going to hit this in training, on uh, you know with this, this guy I've got in mind was was always game day minus two, all right, we're going to take you afters and we're going to do the isolated sprint work. Yeah, and if I could do that in a drill where I could speak to the coach and say, have you got someone who's going to work on I don't know crossing and finishing? Can he put the ball in front of him and we'll make the guy sprint onto it and finish? Great. If not, I'm just going to sprint the guy. Yeah. Either way, we're going to do something contextual. Um, another, another, t- a real classic example, and I, I, I've seen this in, um, you know, when I was doing my consulting with some of the clubs as well, is they say centre backs, right? We're um, we, we're seeing injuries in centre backs, and they're occurring in games. Why is that? And it's typically again, it's that the acceleration and sprint work. Mm. When you look at the drills they do in training, they might not move more than five, six meters laterally, you know, and they're not getting that sort of sprint movement in. So then it's a case of speaking to the assistant coaches. Um, and we did this, you know, at Columbus a lot where can you identify drills where you get the center backs from that transition period, the ball's cleared, the center backs have got to get out. Can we just turn that, the get out bit, can we just turn that into a sprint? Right? So therefore they get the sprint distance and then the discussion is okay. How far and how many? So we're 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 working with the coaches to try and set those parameters, and it's done within it's done within those drills. It pleases everyone that doesn't it? Because the coach gets uh, their bit, the player gets obviously to to play. That's what they're there for, and then you can control obviously what you're trying to take out of that session, doesn't it? But I, was, I know you've touched on it there, but. Can you just go into that the importance? Because we spoke about like putting it into sort of game scenarios and having a response to like external stimuli. So whether it's like opposition, whether it's the ball moving, whether it's a teammate, um, how would you incorporate that? And what's the importance behind doing that that crosses over onto onto game day? Oh yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think it's really insightful because there's there's nothing that mimics the chaotic nature of the game like the chaotic nature of the game. Yeah. That makes sense. So key players, the key players create time and they create space. Right? That's why they, that's why it always looks so easy because everything seems to slow down. You know, key players make the game slow down, even though it's going at hundred miles an hour. Right? And they do that because they're solving the problems that the game is imposing on them. You know, soccer's a game of time and space. If you can control those two things, you know, then, then, then you're going to do well as a player. So we can do all of the, 
you know, insert mechanics drills that we want to do, right? Um, and and they're important, right? Uh, the the reason they're important is not just because players are going. This is this is one thing that does drive me nuts is when I see players just doing drills for the sake of doing drills. Yeah. Right. The reason we do the reason we do those mechanics drills is so that we one in a, in a warm up we activate, right? But two. Um, those drills are about reinforcing joint position and joint position determines muscle function. So it's not a case of doing the drills. It's a case of doing the drills well so that we educate and train the muscles to work in the way they should work. That's the purpose of those, but it's not going to, it's not going to help with, um, the player using that on the field. It's a, it's a tool, right? And then we we take that into, let's call it, let's call it speed expression. Right. And speed expression is where you're actually doing the, the sprint drills and high speed running. And the purpose of that is to to develop the neuromuscular qualities within the player so that they're robust enough and uh, physically capable enough to be able to to exert the speed when they need to exert the speed. Right. Because if you look at most movement in soccer, it's a case of accelerate decelerate change direction re-accelerate but when you re-accelerate you're going to go in a straight line because it's the shortest point between shortest distance between two points yeah um so you need you need the mechanics you need the expression but then you've got to put it in the game context that's when the reactions come in the decisions come in you know everything comes into into that so I would, I would always look at having those three components working together, if that makes sense. So if a, if a player needs more, um, if he needs more of the high-speed running or the mechanics, then we can put that in the individual work on, you know. But the only place you're going to get good decision-making is in the context of reacting to other players. So um, one of the things I actually, you know, we, we did with, with a couple of the guys there who needed to do that, um, was actually let's work on let's work on your mechanics and build it up and then let's work on what sort of things you should be reacting to but then we need to put that into the context of the game because what I can do with you you know one on one in a in a context of thing is going to be very different to what we're going to achieve in a in a small sided and group game but at least we're trying to give them the tools about these are the things you should be thinking about so is it fair to say with that if we take those three and put it into a bit of like a I don't know what you call it, where you spend your time or your energy. Yeah. You you could just tweak the amount that you spend on each one per player because it yeah. depending on what they need. So if they need a little bit more in terms of the contextual work, you can sort of turn that up a little bit, turn one of the others down and then vice versa along the way. Yeah, no, I think so. It comes back to that, like, we have a, you know, you go back to that profile I talked about earlier on. You know, what's going what's gonna to keep this player playing and performing and what's going to make them better, right? So... One of the things I think that we often forget, um, and I have to remind myself all the time, is we're, we're in player development. So whether, whether you're working in an academy system or whether you're working with the top players at an international level, you're trying to make those players better. Now, your window of adaptation is going to be different, right? Depending on your context, but you're always trying to get better every day. Um, and so in mapping that player profile out, it's about what is going to make this player more effective in the position that they have. And yeah. so, so it's exactly right. It's, it's like, do I, do I need to emphasize their mechanics? Do I need to emphasize their expression and, and, and also understand why, 
You know, so the centre forward we were talking about earlier on, he needed the expression because it was protective against injury for him, as well as being effective in his position. You know, so I, I, for me, it's always been about in, in any team sport context, you've got the team schedule and you've got the team training session, but the physical components within that are individualised. Yeah, yeah. That's that's vital, isn't it? I think a lot of people relate to that, that players training di differently to how they play, <laughs> to put it politely. Because um, we, all, we all know players that have been in that same boat. And I just think it's really interesting the sort of approach you take with them, not necessarily trying to get more out of the training because they might not change the way they train, but then identifying some of the factors that if you do train like this and you only hit those markers, these are the, way, this, these are the things we need to put in place to um, reduce that, hopefully reduce that risk of injury and anything that's going to come up throughout a season. Yeah, I think so. And, and and like context is key. If you looked at, I had a number of discussions this with with front office staff and other people around things. Is that you? The the physical data that we see in a game never determines whether we play well or not, right? Um, the fact that the fact that we ran more in a game or we ran more it doesn't tell us anything yeah. you know in fact some of the most effective some of the most effective players you know i can think about from you know from last season they they seem to have the the physical stats were not that you know they, they certainly weren't the highest in and they didn't run the most they didn't sprint the most they didn't but they did their job better than anybody you know um and it's it's one of those misnomers where you come back and say, oh, we performed really well. And actually you didn't. And some of the, sometimes when you lose, you actually get the highest sprint speeds because you, you're spending all your time chasing the ball. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think trying to look at those, the, the the physical variables in isolation of the context of the game, I think you, you, you almost set yourself up for failure. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying a few seasons ago they took the distance cover by Barcelona when they were winning Champions Leagues and leagues and all the rest of it, and it was it was quite relatively low. But it's because they weren't doing the chasing, like you say, they had the ball and they, they were in control. So it is just it's context, isn't it? It's so important. Yeah, I think so, and it's also for me it's the importance of having you know being in and around the training so that you can observe that, you know, and. So you can you can you can look at the data and but you've also got the coach's eye as well and you can see how are the you know are the two marrying up together and working together and that was that was why it was really useful for me again go back to the example we talked about earlier on with having the analyst on the the side who's monitoring the the GPS things live is you know we can start to say okay if the drill does this and this guy's got a mathematical genius he can start to say well okay, the drill is probably going to do this. It's going to be this many meters per minute. The players probably end up with this. He's good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, and that that enables you to have some interaction with the coach live, you know, because the coach would quite often wander up and say, Clive, how are we looking? And it's like, no, we're good. You know, or he's like, can I let this run a couple more minutes? You know, or, you know, that sort of thing. And and those discussions and that, that live interaction are, are, are really useful. I hope you enjoyed part one of the podcast with Clive. We got loads of information covered in part one, but we also go into great detail in part two as well. Um, I just wanted to give a very quick update on our online community. So if you're a community member, um, just log on to the community and you'll be able to get access to our recent webinar with Chris Barnes, Sports Science, the Past, Present and Future. There's also access to 20 other webinars on there, as well as 10 network meeting presentations as well. Um, we've also just 
got some extra member discount on the speed trainers um, that Jonas Dodu has pushed out for us. Um, so you can head over to the website onto the community and you can check out the discount code on there as well to get access to that, as well as some other discounts with partners like Pulse Roll um, and some others on there too. So go and check out the, the discount part of the community if you're already a member. If you're not already a member and you want to see what it's all about, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there and that will give you one month free on the community. If you stay a member after that, we will add you into our WhatsApp group. There's loads of great discussion going on in the WhatsApp group. You'll get continued access to all the webinars and presentations as well as some future webinars we've got coming up very soon. Um, and it is only £4.99 per month. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Clive. Now, just to play devil's advocate on that a little bit, to relate it to coaches that might not have that the privilege of having the, that guy on the side that's able to feedback that live information. You, I think you just answered the question there, by the way, but by, by getting the coach over. Well, what would your advice be to a practitioner possibly working at a club in that situation on um, putting out those drills and trying to keep them as effective as possible? I mean, yeah, look, if you haven't got, if you haven't got the data live and available to you, then, then the key thing is you've got to use your coach's eye and look at it against the plan. Right, you've got to know your plan. So you've got to go in knowing how long do I expect this session to, you know, expect this drill to go on for, in terms of the the, the relative work to rest ratios, the duration, etc. Um, and you've also got to have your coach's eye. Yeah, you, know, you can't. The the data is never going to be a substitute. It's an the, the data enhances your your trade craft as a coach, right? But it's not a replacement for it. So you always have to, um, you always have to work with with both in conjunction. And look, even when, even when you got it going live and you got all the information available to you, you still have that scenario where the coach is like, you know, I'm, I'm looking and going, we, we're we're getting close to to the limit here, and he's like, you know, Clive, I don't give a shit. We're gonna we're gonna keep doing this drill because you know, yeah. but because I've got the plan and because I know what's coming next. Okay, there's okay. Well, if we're gonna red line here, we need to back off there. Yeah. You know, and those kind of things. So that you're able to make those decisions because you get, so the more information you have available to you, the better your decisions become because they're more informed, right? But ultimately it's still the human being making the decision. So I would say if you're in that situation and you're working with the coach and you know the plan, you've got your coach's eye, you can see if players are getting tired or you can see if they're, you know, if the intensity is staying there and they're great. Yeah, it's that effectiveness of the drill, isn't it? Because I think we've all done drills before. When you see it get to that point and you see it turn, you're like, yeah, we're not quite getting what we wanted out of this now. And it's, that's the time, isn't it, to potentially step in or change something? Yeah, and I think there's, you know, we've... I remember, go back, I mean, go go back to my really early days working in, in rugby, for example, and um, one of the things the coaches used to do was to do line-out throws, you know? And they would practice line-out throws and practice line-out throws and practice line-out throws and practice line-out throws. And you could see the quality would, you know, the quality of the session would, it would increase and then it would start to do that. And then after a while, and, you know, they, the players are getting tired of lifting and the guys are getting tired of throwing in and the coaches are going, nope, you didn't get it, do it again. <laughs> and, you know, I'm talking to him and saying, look, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a game, you might get 10 of these, right? And if you don't get each one right, we're not going to do well. Why don't you just do 10 of them? 
Yeah. It forces the guys to really do things, you know, and I understand when you're learning moves or learning this, you repeat it. Um, but I, you know, put it in a soccer context. I've seen training sessions where, you know, you're looking at the coaches, right? First, first one to score two goals. You know, if, if an A team is doing an attack against the defence and the B team is doing an attack against the defence, first one to score two goals wins. Or the next two goals. And it goes on and no one's scoring and no one's scoring and no one's scoring. And the coach is going, we're going to keep going until someone scores. And you can just see the players like, oh my God, don't make a mistake. Yeah. Pressure ramps up. But as the pressure ramps up, the, the, the level of intensity just drops off. The, and, and the drill has suddenly got a completely different objective to it. You know? That's what you got a question, isn't it? That it? Is it keeping that same objective? Yeah. And I, you know, I remember one discussion with the coach around it where um, we had a player who was, he kept a drill going and going and going and going and going and going and going because it wasn't, the, the, the ball wasn't going in. And then afterwards, you know, I, I took one of the players to do his planned sprint stuff. You know, the coach was like, well, why are you doing that? We've just, I've just gone way over volume. You know, I've gone way over volume, I, you know. And I said, because you've gone over volume, but the player, we haven't done any more high speed running. We haven't done any more sprint stuff. Mm. Right? The drill was literally just volume. So what that guy really needs, he hasn't got. Yeah. So sure, we didn't do the same number of sprints because he'd done more volume, but he still had to get a certain number of sprints in to achieve that uh, to achieve that plan. So you never want to be a, you never want to say no. I've planned this, therefore that's exactly what I got to deliver. You've got to always be flexible and adjust on the fly. But if that guy didn't get those those sprints in on game day minus two, we know from his history, he's in, he's in danger moving forward. So that's, that's kind of how we applied that. No, that's a really nice example to, to sum it up, I think as well, and how it practically works. Um, the final thing I was going to ask about the con sort of contextual stuff, Clive, is, is on your um, experience and opinion as well, is when you put in a drill in place and you're trying to make it specific for the players, so say you're using a, a centre forward who's, who's possibly receiving crosses from a wide man, how important do you think it is to use the the exact players? So to take like that, the wide player that they are going to be interacting with or whether they've got a centre midfielder playing the ball into them. Do you think there's any importance in that or do you think it's more a case of just reacting to things like the, the player and the ball and some of the other external stimuli? That's a, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's probably important to have a mixture of both in all honesty. Um, you want guys that are going to play together to get used to what they do, right? So you know, you, you know, you know, people's tendencies, you know, their cues, you know, what to look for. Um, you know, you know where they're liable to place the ball or, you know, and you know, if a guy wants a ball played into his feet, played into his head, played in front of him, right? You know that. So I guess as often as possible, the key thing is, is that, look, if we're doing our job in a perfect world, then, Every day, it's going to be the player that the that the coach wants to put in. Yeah. Right? Um, and we like, I mean, for example, you know, Columbus. Um, I'd say we had a really good injury record in preseason. For example, we had ninety six percent player availability. Right. Um, so we had two players lost two days due to soft tissue injury, but we trained every day for six weeks. We played five games. We had that amount of player availability, but we still had to change players. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, so you're never going to get that 100. percent So I think it's important to rotate players within within those roles because that's what's going to happen during the course of the season. You can't, no one can avoid injuries. You know, don't care how good you are. Um, and also, 
some of these drills like we talked about are going to be in they're going to be in isolation right so if you had players um who weren't going to play in a, in a game under conditioning is under conditioning is a bigger problem or as big a problem as over conditioning right um so if you have players who aren't going to play in a game and aren't playing regularly they need to get that that high metabolic load work you might typically do a conditioning circuit after a game but for me a conditioning circuit is going to be about um, a centre-back doing a number of uh, back pedals or side sprints or whatever to, to receive the ball, to play it back to someone who's going to play it wide to, to sprint down the wing, to cross the ball into a centre-forward who's going to sprint in and then come back and receive a ball and then sprint in again. You yeah. know, so that's how a circuit's going to be. You're not going to get the starting players to be doing that at the end of a session. Yeah. You know, there might be a yeah. coach for in or there might be a... So the the answer is I think is 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 both is they've got to be able to to react to different players but they also want the familiarity of the players in and in and around them. Real, and then I, we I know we've touched on this again quite quite a bit, but um, we're going to talk about um, speed training, uh, speed training even as a um, protective component against injury. And I'm, not, I'm sure many people listening to the podcast will be like, well, yeah, I, I, that's what. I use um, speed work for that's part of my, my speed training philosophy. But what's your sort of approach with that? Well, I know we've touched on it and you give some really good examples on it, but is there anything else that you you sort of think about that we need to discuss? No, I mean, I think, I mean, for, for me, there were some really good discussions of this in and around the COVID time, for example, when you're in, um, you know, in lockdown and isolation and, and talking to other, you know, other colleagues in, in other clubs, they, you know, some of them were saying, look, we're using this time to, to get a really high chronic load, right? So yeah, they were prescribing players a lot of long distance runs or a lot of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of, I understand that because it's easy to prescribe and, you know, you don't normally get that chance to do that. My, my issue with it was twofold, one or threefold actually. Um, one is how conditioned are the players to get in that high chronic load, Yeah, you know, because they're not used to it. Two is the fact that we're not getting the same medical treatment, daily care of the players because that's just not available to them. So what's the effect of that load? And thirdly, um, how does it how does it prepare them for the game? Mm. Right now, at that time, the the they, the players also weren't getting the the two to three weight training sessions a week that they would normally get either. You know, so they're not getting any, you know, so we were doing the best we could with the equipment available to us at players' houses, et cetera, and, and getting stuff, but they weren't getting that same neuromuscular stimulus and stress. So my approach was, can we use that time? And bearing in mind, players were already conditioned because they'd done pre-season and we started the league. Yeah, yeah. Could we, could we use that time to do repeat high-intensity work with direction change, with acceleration, deceleration, with, and that, that for me achieved two things. One, it, um, uh, one, one, it gave them the conditioning base they needed, but two, it was more closely associated with the demand of the game so that when we came back into the training process, the players would be better prepared for it. And speed for me is, there's, there's two ways to really stimulate um, fast twitch fibers, right? Um, one is one is a high load and the other is a high velocity. Yeah. So, for for, for me, it, it was a way of it was a way of actually getting into 
um, those motor units and, and really really challenging them and focusing them so that we were we were both preparing the players to perform but also um, it, it helped to be preventative against injury as, as much as we could right going back into again post covid scenario you've got fixture congestion like 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 no one's seen before you've got you know players unprepared uh physically because you haven't had the the volume of pre-season that you would normally have so injuries are, injuries are going to occur you know we expect to see more hamstring injuries we expect to see more ankle injuries etc yeah definitely it's a it's a mad time we spoke about it a lot on this podcast um and that there's Many different opinions out there, but it's really hard, isn't it? It's really tough to sort of look ahead and be prepared for. Well, we don't know what we're preparing for half the time as well, don't we? That so that's part of the part of the issue too. Um, awesome, that Clive. Well, well, let's move it on because we, we're also going to just um, ask about the importance of making time for speed work as well, and I think this will probably ring true of a lot of practitioners listening, possibly people that are working with limited time in academies in the UK or whatever the role it is. So have you got any advice to those guys on um, creating time um, to make sure that they get in their speed work? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it just comes, it comes down to the priority that you give it, right? And one of the, one of the things I learned earlier on and probably, probably through making mistakes is the fact that if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So you've got to decide what your priorities are and you've got to proportion your time accordingly, you know? So we talk all the time about um, periodization and planning is about what are you going to emphasize at a particular time and then making sure that you've got the prerequisites in place to, to achieve that, you know? So if you want to emphasize speed, make sure you've got players who are, who are conditioned powerfully to, to do that. Um, so for, for me, it's about really trying to understand at a certain point in time, what is it you're trying to emphasize and then apportion your time accordingly to that. So there's always opportunity, you know, every warm-up is a, every warm-up is a learning opportunity for the players and a great chance for us as coaches to really reinforce the mechanics and the neural preparation stuff, right? If we're doing that, then we don't necessarily need to, to set aside additional time for that unless... There's a player that doesn't get it. Yeah. Right. In which case, let's, you know, let's make time for that player to, to do that. Um, and so at the end of every, at the end of most training sessions, and not every training session, because there's, you know, but, but players, there may be one or two sessions a week where players get opportunities for individual work. Right. So, and, and that's the discussion then with the coaches. Okay, do you do you need this guy to work on something particular or can I take him for this and here's why I want to do it, you know? And it doesn't take many repetitions to, to really be able to emphasise those things. You're not talking about another half an hour on top of a training session. It's like, I've got this block. How can I, how can I put it in? Now, with regards to that, if you're then talking about maximum velocity work, you've got to understand that... Um, the how can I put this? You're not going to get maximum velocity at the end of a training session where players fatigued. Yeah, you know that's why typically that's why I emphasised it on game day minus two, for example, is because those sessions tended to be shorter, but we could recover the players significantly. You know, we the, the sprint work doesn't take a long time to recover from if you do it with the right intensity and the right volume. So one of the one of the things that's always interested me with the GPS statistics, for example, on using sprint work, 
if a player typically, you know, a player will register a sprint if they go at 70 percent above seventy percent of max, right? So the average speed at Columbus, for example, is nine point two meters a second as a as a as a max velocity, right? That was recorded in in a Lilia test. So a player goes above seventy percent of that in a, in a, it got recorded as a sprint. Well, for me, that's not a maximum sprint seventy percent. Mm. Right, yeah. so that's where that's where you've got the numbers, but you've got to use the coach's eye as well and really say, have I have I given the time for this player to be really doing the expression that he needs to do? And so I would work a lot with the individual players and say, look, we need you to work on this. Here's when we're going to do it, you know, and and set time aside. And sometimes that means giving up other things. So, for example, does the player need to go in 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 the weight room, or can I use that weight room time? To go and do additional speed work, there's 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 your compromise because you want to understand what is it is what is it that's going to make this player a better player. Yeah, that's you the know? key question, isn't it? That's what it keeps going back to. Yeah, that's the key question, definitely. Well, I mean, I think for me, that's that's one of the things that that sports, you know, sports scientists or strength and conditioning staff have been have been hoping. You know, we've been bad at for as an industry for a number of years, is not evidencing how we make players better. Right. So if you want to go back to talking about the, how we understand the key transitions in a game. So the one of the discussions I had with our front office when I when I came in was was um, not that we would use things like mass tests or mass runs to demonstrate improvements in fitness over a preseason, but that I would demonstrate the impact on critical factors in the game. So, for example, what we did do and again, the value of an analyst here um, we took at the end of preseason, we looked at all the sprints from the previous year that the players did in games. And then we took the, the last three preseason games and said, what are the, what are the sprints the players are doing? Mm. And how does it compare? And what we were finding was that in 60 minutes of a preseason game this year, they were doing more than one standard deviation than they were doing in 90 minutes last year. Right, ergo, they're, they're doing a lot more sprints and they're more capable of it than they were doing the previous year. That tells me and it tells the coach far more about the work we're doing than, yeah, we got an improvement of 100 meters in a mass run. Yeah. For example, right? So it, it's being able to put things into that, into that context and demonstrate an impact of the work we do rather than saying, yeah, he got, he ran further or he, squatted more or whatever yeah brilliant some top information in there mate that was absolutely brilliant Clive we'll move it on because I'm wary of time I know you've got one hell of a journey to tackle shortly but um, we'll move it on to some quick fire questions just to, to wrap up um, to start with who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far oof there are there, I mean far too many like I, you know I always believe that you're a learner, right? So you always look at stuff. If I had to name, if I had to name three, right? Let's let's say three. Um, one, probably Professor Mike Stone, who really, I mean, for for the last, I don't know, fifty years, has been publishing the the strength and conditioning stuff that has made a lot of us think about planning and periodization and those sort of stuff. Um, Lauren Seagrave has been a massive influence for me in terms of understanding speed and movement and and how I can apply the principles to the work that I do. And I think the other one that you know deserves a massive mention is, is Tony Strudwick um, at Man United, who, I mean, Tony demonstrated at United in a successful club 
the real value of, of sports performance, uh, sports science and integrated working and moving that through and um, with 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 what he achieved at United at the time, you know, he was there, I think is is phenomenal and a learning thing for us all. And, you know, he's he's someone I, I look to and rely on a lot. You know, still we still talk a lot. Brilliant. And the next one, what would you say your best strength is as a practitioner or biggest strength as a practitioner? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I leave it to other people to say, I look, the key thing for me is I want to learn and I'm curious. Right. So I think that that hunger and that desire to always get better and never want to rest and relax on what I think I might know. Right. There's, there's always going to be someone who's going to be smarter than me and, and better than me. So what is it I can take from those people? So I think that that curiosity and that desire to get better is probably my biggest strength. And then next one, what is, is there any sort of standout CPD you've done recently? Um, recently is an interesting concept. Um, <laughs> we can stretch it. We can stretch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, one of the things, I mean, one of the things I always, I've always valued is the ability to um, either go in and see someone else working and see what they do or um, have someone come into our environment and, and give us feedback, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, so, so I think they're the most valuable, spending time with quality practitioners and seeing what they do and having the ability to unpick and, and talk through that um, is, is massively valuable. So obviously, you know, during, during lockdown isolation, that sort of stuff hasn't happened. Yeah. Right. Um, so recent is a, is, is an interesting context, but for example, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I was lucky. I spent some time with Des Ryan at Arsenal. That was great. Talking to his staff, bouncing ideas off each other, looking at, you know, in your environment, what do you do? How does that apply to my environment? How might I adapt this? Why did you do that? I think that was, that was really valuable and, and, a, and a great learning experience from, from, you know, working with a really good team. Um, the other one I think that was that stands out, um, the US Olympic Center in 2019 did an invited symposium uh, where they brought in 100 professionals. And the idea of that, it was, I mean, it was full on. We were like eight in the morning till eight at night. Um, but there was, it wasn't just the usual keynote presentations. And, and there was some, and I mean, I, I was lucky enough to do one, but the idea of the keynote presentations is, we broke them up, you, you, you presented for a bit, then you set some discussion topics and people mm -hmm. were put in tables to discuss the topics that you had and share ideas. Then the presentation continued and there was another discussion and another topic. Um, so it wasn't just your typical information send, it was all about what are you hearing from what the information that's being sent. You discuss it with five people who've all got a different lens than, you, than you've got and a different experience so what are they taking from it learn from it make some notes and then and then move on so it was three days of that sort of really focused interactive discussion thing and that that for me was was phenomenal because it there was no time to just sit and relax yeah. someone was always going to ask you what you thought about what had just been said you know and that 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 i think was really interesting yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's massive value in that, isn't there? Having those discussions, um, like you say, going back to sort of last question about visiting people and getting people's point of view, but then also conferences or seminars that are run like that are so powerful, aren't they? Because you, you take so much more away from it. I think so. I mean, the, the one thing I've always learned is that there's, there's, 
there's going to be people with better ideas than mine out there, you know? So you want to be able to access those, interpret them. And sure, just because they do it doesn't mean to say that you're going to be able to. Yeah, definitely. But definitely. like, what, what can I learn from it? Yeah, 100%. And then final ones, Clive, just the same question, but for firstly a coach and then a player. What do you think one of the most important traits a, a coach should have? Uh, you, people have to trust you, right? Um, without without trust and without being able to build relationships, there's, you know, you, you're not going to succeed as a coach. Yeah. So um, trust trust is about competence and character. So you got to you got to have you you, you got to know your stuff and be credible at knowing your stuff, but you've also got to put it across in a way that the the players want to buy into it and want to believe into it and and know that that you've got their best interests at heart you know and and like when you know in 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 moving on from columbus um one of the things that mattered most to me was the players who contacted me and said you know thank you so much for taking care of me and that those sorts of things are, in, are important and that's what's that's what's really going to help you move forward is that relationships and then just to refer that to the players, so thinking about some of those players that you've had the, fair to say, the greatest impact with, what do you think are some traits that sort of stand out from those players? I think, you know, I mean, work ethic yeah. is, is one. Um, but also, I think players who, who do better, they're, they're the players who take responsibility for their own programme and uh, they don't just blindly do what the, what the coach tells them to do, you know? It's I, I love players asking me why, and that that actually helps the building the the the, the buy into that process, right? I want you to do this because why? Because yeah. And I, so one of the one of the key things that you know that uh, that I borrowed from someone or stole from someone, I don't I can't even remember who it was now, but they said you should always be able to answer if someone asks you about your program, you should always be able to answer the why five times. Yeah. Right. Why do you do this? Because of that. Yeah, but why? Well, because of this. Why? Right. And if you can answer the why five times, then you actually understand it fully comprehensively. And but also players should be able to ask that because they want to understand the why. If they understand the why and they understand it's to their best interests, then then they'll do it. And and I think those players who are willing to engage in that discussion and not 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 in an objectionable way, but they're curious they, they want to take responsibility for their own body and their own program. Yeah. You know, they're the players I want to engage with most. And I think they're the players that are going to get the best out of any, any performance specialist. Top class. Brilliant. Clive, just finally, if people want to uh, follow your work or potentially reach out, um, is there anywhere that you direct them? No, I mean, I, I use, I'm not, I'm not a, massively in-depth user of social media and that sort of stuff but um you know you can you can find me on uh twitter i think it's clive sport snc um but i'm also on linkedin and, and facebook and again depending on the, the nature of what the material is i'll you know i'll use any of those platforms uh differently um but my email is is human performance cb at gmail.com so if people want to reach out i'm i will do my best to answer any any questions or inquiries that come in Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time, mate. Really appreciate you coming on. I know it's a busy time and you, like I said, you've got a big drive ahead, so all the best with that. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for coming on and giving up your time. No, that's really enjoyable. Thing. Thank, thanks so much, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks, Clive. Bye-bye. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode with Clive. I certainly did. Um, Clive's a coach that I've followed for a number of years um, since way back when I think he led one of my UKSCA. I think it's possibly the weightlifting workshop. Um, so I've followed his career and it was great to see him end up in football with Columbus Crew. And it's great to have him on the podcast to discuss some of his experiences. I always think it's really interesting getting coaches that have been involved in a number of different sports and getting their eyes on football just to see what they can bring to the physical preparation you can go and give Clive a follow on Twitter. He's at Clive Sport S and C. Um, takeaways for me on this one, I think there's quite a few. I think one of one of the um, ones he spoke about early in the podcast was the common means of communication. So we spoke about language and communication a lot on the podcast, but in terms of a commonality of discussion. Um, everyone's everyone's voice is equal. It's, you use these phrases, which is really important. It's all part of building a successful culture within um, a team and the team dynamics. We spoke about what we could determine as poor trainers or, tra- or or players that maybe train differently to how they play, and also how Clive approached that and the sort of process he went through in terms of protecting them against injury and making sure that their load um, is up to scratch. We spoke about um, the, the value of a analyst and also how he used them to full effect as well. Um, how he his work and the analyst work both complemented each other. So that was really interesting. And then we he also touched on um, in terms of programming and being confident within your programming that you should be able to answer the question of why five times. And I think that was a really key takeaway for me that if someone asks you, um, why are you doing this and you answer and they say why then the, you should be able to come up with an answer five times to really justify why you're doing what you're doing at that certain time in the program so they were my takeaways as always I'd love to hear yours from the episode it'd be great to get some feedback so reach out to us you can DM us on social media you can drop us an email mail at footballfitfed.com or you can just tag us uh, repost the, the podcast give it a share and just tag some of your key takeaways on that I know Clive would love to hear from you guys as well so big thank you as always for listening to the podcast I'm really looking forward to getting out some future episodes of this podcast and really growing it and pushing it this year. So I appreciate everyone's help in doing that. Any recommendations of guests that you've got as well. Um, So please help giving it a push um, and reaching out to as many coaches as possible. But we'll speak to you again next week in episode 124.